Use my name. The street. Talk, motherfucker. My name is my name. This is My Name Is My Name, an anomalous humanities podcast with APS. Today I sit down with someone who doesn't work directly in the humanities. At least that's not what they pay him for. Liam Heenahan is a ecologist who works mostly in soils, but who's also been an important part of a field called urban ecology, which studies the ecosystems that our cities are. Liam runs the Institute for Nature and Culture, which incidentally is where I had my first academic job. As you'll hear in the interview though, Liam is a scientist concerned with issues that are philosophical in nature, ethical, uh, religious. He's not constrained by uh, his status as a scientist from getting involved in uh, non-scientific inquiries. In part that's because ecology is a field of science that necessarily involves big philosophical questions. What constitutes life? What constitutes death? How do things fit together? Do things even fit together? On the Tumblr site, you can find links to some of Liam's writings, uh, including a piece he just published with Three Quarks Daily on killing things. There he brings up the question of sacrifice in science, and especially in ecology. Why are some things killable for our pursuit of knowledge and other things not? Why are some things mournable and others not? That's a topic that you'll also hear us talk about in this uh, episode. Death is sort of omnipresent in the episode, though so are issues of love and other uh, squishy subjects. But squishy both in the sense of seemingly sentimental, but also squishy in the sense of their physicality. The other day I had just finished reading Clarice Lispector's The Passion According to G.H., and as I was editing this podcast, I was thinking a lot about, about that book. So much so that I'm going to read a couple passages from it as a way of framing this conversation with Liam. In the book, the protagonist, G.H., kills a cockroach, and this prompts a mystical experience. She captures our revulsion at cockroaches, writing, What I had always found repulsive in roaches is that they were obsolete yet still here, knowing that they were already on the earth, and the same as they are today, even before the first dinosaurs appeared. 
knowing the first man already found them proliferated and crawling alive, knowing that they had witnessed the formation of the great deposits of oil and coal in the world, and there they were during the great advance and then during the great retreat of the glaciers, the peaceful resistance. I knew that roaches could endure for more than a month without food or water, and that they could even make a usable, nutritive substance from wood, and that, even after being crushed, they slowly decompressed and kept on walking. Even when frozen, they kept on marching once thawed. For 350 million years, they had been replicating themselves without being transformed. When the world was nearly naked, they were already sluggishly covering it. Then our narrator kills the roach by slamming its body in a wardrobe. She goes on to write, What had I done to myself? With my heart thumping, my temples pulsing, this is what I'd done to myself. I had killed. I had killed. But why such delight, and besides that, a vital acceptance of that delight? For how long, then, had I been about to kill? No, it wasn't about that. The question was, what had I killed? The calm woman I'd always been, had she gone mad with pleasure? With my eyes still closed, I was trembling with delight. To have killed was so much greater than I was. It was appropriate to that limitless room. To have killed opened the dryness of the sands of the room to dampness, finally, finally. As if I dug and dug with hard and eager fingers until I found within myself a thread of drinkable life that was the thread of death. I slowly opened my eyes, with sweetness now and gratitude shyness with a modesty of glory. From the finely damp world from which I was emerging, I opened my eyes and met the great and harsh open light. I saw the now closed door of the wardrobe, and I saw half of the roach's body outside the door, sticking out, erect in the air, a carotid, but a living carotid. I hesitated to comprehend, looking at it in surprise. I gradually realized what had happened. I hadn't slammed the door hard enough. I'd caught the cockroach, yes, which couldn't go any further, but I'd left it alive, alive and looking at me. I quickly averted my eyes with violent revulsion. I needed, therefore, to strike again. One more strike? I wasn't looking at the roach, but I told myself I still needed to strike one more time. I repeated it slowly as if each repetition could command the pulses of my heart, the beats that were spaced too widely like the soreness of a pain I couldn't feel. Until finally, Managing to hear myself, finally managing to get myself under control, I lifted my hand high in the air as if my whole body, along with the blow of my arm, would come down against the wardrobe door. But that's when I saw the roach's face. It was sticking straight out, at the height of my head and my eyes. For a second I sat there with my hand frozen in the air, then I gradually lowered it. A second earlier, I still might have been able not to see the countenance on the roach's face. But it happened a fraction of a second too late. I was seeing. My hand, which had lowered when it abandoned its determination to strike, was slowly rising back to stomach level. Though I myself hadn't moved, my stomach had cringed inside my body. My mouth was terribly dry. I ran an equally dry tongue over my rough lips. It was a face without a contour. The antennae stuck out in whiskers on either side of its mouth. Its brown mouth was well drawn. The long and slender whiskers were moving slow and dry. Its black, faceted eyes were looking. It was a cockroach as old as a fossilized fish. 
It was a cockroach as old as salamanders and chimeras and griffins and leviathans. It was as ancient as a legend. I looked at its mouth. There was the real mouth. I had never seen a roach's mouth. I, in fact, I had never actually seen a cockroach. I had just been repulsed by its ancient and ever-present existence, but had never actually come face to face with one, not even in thought. And so, I was discovering that, though compact, a roach is composed of layers and brown layers, fine as onion skin, as if each could be lifted by a fingernail and still there would always be another underneath, and then another. Maybe the scales were its wings, but then it must be made of layers and layers of thin wings pressed together to form that compact body. It was reddish brown and had cilia all over. Maybe the cilia were its multiple legs. The antennae were now still dry and dusty strands. A cockroach doesn't have a nose. I looked at it with that mouth and eyes. It looked like a dying mulatto woman, but its eyes were radiant and black, the eyes of a bride. Each individual eye looked like a cockroach, the fringed, dark, dustless, and living eye. And the other eye was the same. Two roaches implanted in the roach, and each eye reproduced the entire cockroach. After noticing a white substance oozing out of the crushed roach's body, she goes on to say, What comes out of the roach's belly is not transcendable. Ah, I don't want to say that it's the opposite of beauty, opposite of beauty doesn't even make sense. What comes out of the roach is, today, blessed be the fruit of thy womb. I want the present without dressing it up with a future that redeems it, not even with a hope. Until now, what hope wanted in me was just to conjure away the present. But I want much more than that. I want to find the redemption in today, in right now, in the reality that is being and not in the promise. I want to find joy in this instance. I want the God in whatever comes out of the roach's belly, even if that, in my former human terms, means the worst, and in human terms, the infernal. Yes, I wanted it, but at the same time I was grabbing with both hands onto the pit of my stomach. I can't, I implored of another man who also could not and never could. I can't. I don't want to know what the thing I would now call the nothing is made of. I don't want to feel directly in my very delicate mouth the salt in the eyes of the roach because, my mother, I had been used to the sogginess of its layers and not the simple moistness of the thing. It was as I was thinking about the salt in the roach's eyes that, with the sigh of someone who is going to have to give in yet again, I realized that I was still using the old human beauty, salt. Even the beauty of salt and the beauty of tears I would have to abandon. Even that since what I was seeing predated humanity. So with that, let's turn to my conversation with Liam. A word of warning, this interview was recorded with my old computer, so you might hear some buzzing. I hope it's not too distracting. So, so you mentioned that you were a naturalist, mm-hmm. or you were interested in being a naturalist when you lived in Ireland, yeah. uh, and that's kind of what took you down the academic track, you went... Yeah. I'm guessing Ireland was pretty fucking Catholic at that point in time. Uh, was there yeah. any yeah. was there any uh, tension? Well, you know, so I um, I yeah, I mean, I felt that tension. I I, I had assumed that I would be. I'd want, and my mom, who's in town at the moment, had reminded me 
embarrassingly uh, that I wanted to be a monk until Cistercians, until um, I'd say I was in my late teens. Hmm. And even when I went through kind of a, you know, a Darwin-inspired crisis of faith, you know, these things that, like, parents are supposed to worry about, you know, evangelical parents worrying about their kids going off to um, college, discovering Darwin, and, you know, becoming atheists, which people say, nah, no, that doesn't happen. In fact, that that's what happened to me. But huh. even after, like, I kind of was very doubtful about this whole thing, there was, there's a, you know, sensual beauty to churchy things uh, that I was trying to figure out whether I could still be a good monk whilst not <laughs> believing. So I was kind of, I was kind of enthusiastic. I think part of my problem as well was that I, um, so I was big on the idea of being a Trappist, like a Cistercian. Mm -hmm. And then, and there was, I had written to a um, kind of leader of the novitiates in some monastery, I think up in Northern Ireland. And then I discovered the um, Carthusians mm. were even badder asser than the Cistercians. <laughs> but it was so, it was so kind of austere that uh, that kind of broke my spirit a little bit. But it wasn't kind of not being religious. I, I was so inculcated mm. in kind of a religious kind of pietist worldview that um, even atheism didn't really break my resolve. Mm. Um, maybe it was gals that did, but I, I don't know what it was. <laughs> but I, I, uh, yeah, it took um, it, that took a while. But I would say for me, listen, you know, de definitely, kind of, um, you know, as I became more and more immersed in kind of my understanding of evolutionary stuff, pretty much the way that's meant to happen, it kind of makes you question at least very literal interpretations. But I remember early on, like when, um, so I was trying to convince my parents of the kind of, um, you know, correctness, the essential correctness of the evolutionary point of view. And uh, UCD, University College Dublin Zoology Department, where I was at the time, was pretty, pretty orthodox Darwinian place. So the, you know, there was no tension within the degree about those sort of uh, things. But um, so I was trying to convince my parents you know, that they really had to kind of rethink. And they were kind of ordinary fundamentalists. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they weren't, to them, it wasn't kind of a special worldview. It was just the fucking worldview, <laughs> you know? And it was the kind of, you know, and, uh, just in, in the way that I was pretty confident that at six o'clock every evening in pretty much all of the homes down the street, except for the Protestant homes, mm -hmm. that there was little families huddled in the kitchen on their knees on the fucking tile of, or, you know, the, um, what do they call that? Kind of on the, um, you know, tilo, I think they used to call it, like these horrible little um, kind of plastic uh, kitchen surface. Oh, like uh, laminate. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like in every house, like along the street, there was people saying they're, um, you know, they're, they're angelists. Um, so that Shit. was kind of, that was that was the worldview. And I didn't, so that, that was like, I, I don't know, like up to um, on during the 70s. Yeah. Um, so it was like a, you know, so the, country at the time was still pretty pious mm. you know and but uh, UCD zoology department was just like it was kind of evolutionary ecology mm -hmm. physiology it was just pure materialism mm. and uh, that had a big impact on me of course so anyway I was trying to convince my parents 
that okay well they really got to change their view about this stuff and um they were talking about the evolution of humans and my mom said well you know if this is true why aren't the monkeys in dublin zoo you know turning into humans <laughs> and fuck me if that didn't stump me for a little oh, while okay. it's it's kind of like a it's kind of you know a beginner's question but it kind of in some ways now kind of reminded me of um I had just swallowed this whole materialist worldview hook, line, and sinker, even though as simple a question as that, uh, I found it kind of a little bit difficult to explain to her in kind of natural selection terms, like, you know, why that's not know, the case. Why that's not, not, the, not the case. So, yeah, big, you know, Catholicism was uh, kind of the... I don't know the atmosphere, but this training was was a pretty solidly kind of scientific training, mm -hmm. and it did it did set me up, um, and I felt the pain of that as I went through college um, mm. of kind of that that uh, tension. Is that where your your kind of philosophical interests come? You think is the the kind of implied metaphysics in in most sciences? Because yeah, you're you're working yeah. on a PhD here, yeah, uh, as well as you know being head of department. Yeah. co-director of the Institute for Nature and Culture. Yeah. And well, the philosophy, I mean, as you know, I consider to be my job. Like, yeah. <laughs> middle-aged dudes need something to do with their spare time. <laughs> and, you know, my, 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 you know, my, my thing happens to be philosophy, but I could be out on, you know, on the green, I guess, mm. just as easily. But, you know, I, I mean, maybe it's just not, not that simple, but um, I would say maybe, yeah, I mean, so... I mean, the philosophy, I think, if I had had my brothers when I went to college, I was probably more inclined towards, you know, the humanities than mm -hmm. I was the sciences. Mm -hmm. But it was pretty clear to me that my parents, they disagree, I, I bet, but my parents would not have been as inclined to let me go to college if I was doing something as wildly impractical as um, the humanities. As a philosophy degree. Yeah, yeah, as if, you know, so that really was never an option, even though I definitely, you know, I was pretty well read for, mm -hmm. and as a lot of Dublin kids really were back then. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the philosophy for me did come a little bit later, just as kind of an act of decision. The one I, I felt kind of drawn to a certain style of writing and thinking. Mm. Um, I mean, but that... Did that uh, come into conflict with the materialism that you had before? Yeah, not so. I I kind of see those sort of things as coming much later. And mm. so for me, like you know, by the time so I kind of announced myself an atheist or whatever, you know, when I was in my early um, maybe early twenties, and I told my parents I wasn't going to mass anymore, which is now which they found kind of disturbing. This is when I was about I don't know nineteen or twenty. And I was the first family family member that did that. Mm. They kind of had to deal with that, I suppose. But that all seemed like a you know that seemed like a long time ago. I would say now for me the problem is that I know that you can't uncatholicize yourself. So like you know, even though I, I kind of you know I guess I'm still an atheist, mm. but I'm not even sure what that means anymore. Or mm. the term doesn't I guess resonate for me. Mm. So now I still feel like I I could I never have really escaped that way of thinking. 
So I, I still, you know, as a, I guess a middle-aged, late middle, am I late middle-aged? How does that even You're fucking work? You're a young work? man. Yeah, I don't know how that works. <laughs> I don't know how that works. But like as a fifty-year-old, yeah, um, I, you know, I still kind of haven't fully worked that out. Other than knowing that, like, I was so marinated in the so-called Catholic intellectual tradition, which I guess means going to fucking mass yeah. way too many times. Actually, recently, I have I told you this? Like, I recently ca I went to mass yeah. every day, yeah. every day, like when I was a teenager, up to when I never went again, yeah. more or less. And I calculated recently. I used to think, okay, well, you know, if I calculate the number of masses I went to between fourteen and whatever, you know, uh, nineteen twenty, maybe I have enough masses to do me for a lifetime of obligation. Yeah. But I fucking ran out. <laughs> I get about forty-five. Really? Yeah. I was. I'm like, I'm fresh out of masses. Yeah. So that's that's. You're uh, going that's for like every every Sunday. So I went every day. No, every no, when day. you were calculating yeah. how many. Oh yeah, so if I was just okay. going one, you know, Sunday and maybe like throw in a holy day of obligation or okay. two. Okay. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I made the calculation, and now I am kind of living in mortal sin, I guess. Yeah. How's yeah. it feel? You know, not as good really as it should. <laughs> but then again, like I went to a mass recently for you know my brother's kid's confirmation. Mm-hmm. It's snoozy shit. You know, <laughs> I mean, I find I found I was not I didn't find it invigorating. Right. But yeah, but I, you know, I don't want to make too light of it because I I still remember those prayers and I still love mm -hmm. um, the prayers of my childhood. And I can I don't know. Do you, do you know that the, the uh, that um, prayer, Hail Holy Queen? No. Can I, can I give you a bit of it, please? Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, hail our life, our sweetness and our hope. Thee do we cry for banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Now listen to this. Turn then, O most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us. And it goes on. But, I mean, think about that. Like a divinity, you're calling attention mm -hmm. to yourself, you know, from a divinity. And after you beseech this divinity, you know, she turns her fucking lights on you <laughs> turn then O most gracious advocate thine eyes of mercy towards me there's something beautifully terrifying yeah about that yeah, absolutely so i haven't escaped that but i bet this is not what you were oh, absolutely yeah. no this is this is this is exactly what yeah, i was hoping for yeah my um, my, my failed catholicism failed catholicism we won't get into your failed greek orthodoxy because uh, because there was a, a moment where you and the family almost converted right oh i'm uh, no so my my wife and kids, of course, are Greek Orthodox, as I oh, okay. them. Yeah, but um, and I, I, I did, you know, my. I don't think my mother, our father, know this, but I. They won't find this. Yeah, I um, I converted, so I am officially Greek Greek uh, Orthodox. Okay, so like a Murano Catholic. Yeah. In Greek Orthodoxy. Yeah, it was just like, yeah, it was like just to make that split kind of really. Yeah, emphatic and definitive, huh. but I think God knows I'm a Catholic. Okay, you know, <laughs> I think He knows. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. So, switching gears, uh, you've been um, you've been doing a couple new uh, ecological projects that are uh, pretty creative. So they're not they're not normal uh, studies mm -hmm. that you would you know you're not going out into a field and. 
putting it in quadrants and digging yeah. up earthworms like you used to. Um, so you, you've you been doing this thing called uh, the Prager Walk? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Uh, sure. So um, Robert Lloyd Prager was a – I mean, is a, was the predominant naturalist of his um, of his years, like early – he was born – 25th of August, 1865. Um, and, uh, but he came kind of into prominence in the early part of the 20th uh, century. And um, I've always been kind of interested in, in his work. So he's a very traditional natural historian. And to some extent, that's exactly... So to me, I kind of my recent interest in Prager is kind of bringing me back to that moment when... I thought, okay, really, what I want to train is um, in, you know, natural history. Mm. You know what your organisms are. You have kind of a love and an interest in what the fuck it is they're up to out there. Um, but um, you know, ecology. I mean, since Prager, uh, you know, since those years, since the kind of the waning years of the era of natural history, ecology's mm -hmm. become more and more kind of a robust, modern, quantitative mm. um, science, which I think is a good thing in so many ways. But more and more it means that the ecologist tends not to know, you know, tends not to know plants or animals. Mm. So the training is kind of more in, it's more theoretical, it's conceptual, um, and ecology has become much more experimental. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, when it's quantitative, it's a, um, I don't know, it's, it's like modeling exercises or computers. So for the most part, you know, ecologists, this is the sound of an ecologist working, you know, that it's kind of you're tapping away at your computer. Right. Like, you know, a businessman or a businesswoman or, yeah. you know, that's... Um, or a philosopher. Or a philosopher. You know, but, you know, I guess... Hopefully yeah. the sound of philosophy is still a pencil scratching on a page or something. I, like that. I think they prefer pens. Yeah, but fountain pens. Yeah, fancy well. French <laughs> fucking fountain pens. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so the um, so I you know I think this is kind of a little bit alarming that the only way in which we do ecology these days, slight exaggeration, you know, is kind of in a way that's remote from the body. Hmm. So the body of the ecologist tends not to be an important methodological component in the way in which we develop knowledge about the world. Whereas in the heyday, you know, if Darwin wants to know something about, you know, diversity of life on Earth, he goes on a ship and he brings his body across the sea and he ends up walking kind of around the Galapagos, you know, all of these sort of things. Actually, just as a little footnote, if you do a word search in um, the Voyage of the Beagle, mm -hmm. the word walk occurs you know, many times more frequently than any nautical term. Mm. So the voyage was not, you know, it's not sailing. It's a voyage on foot for the most part. So I was interested in this idea that, um, you know, there had to be kind of room, there has to be room in ecology for kind of the physical engagement in the process of knowledge creation. And when I started like about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, and writing about Robert Lloyd Prager, I was interested that he had kind of a philosophy of the body. Mm. Who wouldn't have thought of it that way? But he was very scrupulous about telling us how, you know, how he walked and why he walked and 
how his physical engagement with the land ended up influencing the way he, um, you know, developed his science. So, in I spent like earlier, maybe last year, what year is it? 2014. Okay, so I think in 2013, maybe it was this year, sometime like not so long ago, I spent a couple of days, act actually it was more than that, I spent about a week going through all of Prager's archival material in the Royal Irish Academy in Dublin. Mm. Was, uh, I was on a sabbatical leave. So I was interested just going through, kind of sifting through his uh, stuff um, in, the, in the Royal Irish Academy in the library. Um, actually, uh, just a little footnote, that the Royal Irish Academy is one of these august, you know, I mean, the Royal Society, essentially Royal um, uh, kind of institution. But it was a place where, as a kid, you know, I would have felt very unwelcome, very Anglo-Irish in its kind of sensibility. At least that's the way I thought about it. Turns out, I mean, it's an enormously welcoming place with a gorgeous library and these Prager records, boxes and boxes of his material. So when I wor working through that uh, material, I kind of, it became really clear to me that um, Prager had... Um, spent a lot of time walking um, in order to create Irish topographical botany, which is his 1901 book, and then his later uh, later work, The Botanist in Ireland. And I did a calculation of the amount of walking that he had to do in order to create some of these works, and turns out he did about a thousand miles a year. It's, you know, it's a reasonable amount of walking. So I had uh, I had this bright idea that we would start doing a Prager walk. I haven't, by the way, announced to um, the people who are doing this walk with me that this is an annual commitment. I figured let people do the first thousand miles, and then I'll tell them that they're on the hook for about five years because for one book alone, he he walked five thousand miles. Um, so anyway, my idea was that we would do kind of a Prager walk. But unlike Prager, who, like traditional natural historians, headed out of the city, uh, my interests these days are primarily in urban ecological stuff, so that we would do this thousand miles of scrupulously attentive, you know, observational, meditative walking in the city. And so I, you know, I wrote a few little pieces about it um, through the blog for the Center for Humans and Nature, which is worth checking out. And I kind of, through that, I recruited kind of a number of people from Brooklyn, some folks in Ireland, some folks on the West Coast, a lot of Chicagoans, including um, Rick Lee and Philosophy, our mutual friend. Um, and these are folks who have committed to kind of talking up a thousand, thousand, thousand miles. But really, you know, maybe you've heard too much about this, but um, to some extent, that does then connect with my interest in philosophy because I am interested in kind of, um, you know, all of these particularly continental movements towards uh, kind of reappropriation of the body. And um, what I'm especially interested in is the role of, you know, physical bodily things in epistemological questions. So, you know, is it the case this is a hypothesis that as a science matures, you know, its methodology methodology becomes more and more remote from physical engagement with things. So the gesture of the scientist then tends to be 
the physical part of it is like you, you set up an experiment and then you creep away from it, let it do its own fucking thing and then go back and measure stuff. Whereas, you know, I'm interested in like, you know, what messy things happen when, you know, you, you know, when you have to take your own body into account in the creation of the knowledge about the world that you're interested in. So it's kind of a germ of an idea, but I think these sort of projects, like the Prager walk, the Taz Nathan Mart walk, is kind of, for me, is philosophically interesting, for me at least. So this uh, 1,000 urban miles, uh, is this related to your, your, your death day as well? Yeah, I, you know, it is related. Um, so when you walk in the cities, you um, come across dead things, like dead animals, dead birds. Bunny usually not dead people. By, usually not, you know, but like <laughs> bunny rabbits beheaded by yeah. hawks, rats, rats, rats as big as you know, Buicks in Chicago. Um, they so kill rabbits? The, or you mean rats. you you come no, across no, dead one, rats? One come, one, okay. One does yeah, come. yeah. I have a I have a, and so I, I I have been collecting, and maybe I just noticed this. Like when I was going through my phone photos recently, I realized that there was a maybe slightly alarming number of dead things in it, and so I had this idea. So you you know if you're walking in a Prager spirit, which means that you're walking with a certain openness, mm -hmm. directed by kind of your knowledge but with an openness to new things or something like that that you know if you're paying attention i mean suddenly you see you know dead birds dead bunnies like all over the place and i years ago i'd come across an essay by um gary lopez mm. um who's a great um natural historian and writer who um talks about like having he was driving home to oregon or somewhere like that um and was noticing all this roadkill and decided every time he saw something, I guess he was on a little country road or else this would have been impossible. But every time he saw like a dead thing in the road, he would stop the car. He would um, pick up the animal and yeah. he would bury it at the roadside. Okay. And it's a pretty cool idea, you know, to be kind of attentive, as attentive maybe to the living or to the dead as you are to the living. So... Mm. I had um, I'd floated this idea of a death day where those, particularly folks who are doing Prager stuff anyway, but maybe whoever wants to would, um, you know, actually pay attention to kind of the dead animals of the city. Mm. And so the idea then would be that people would, um, if they see a dead thing, they would uh, tag, you know, they would um, the GPS coordinate, yeah. maybe photograph it. And then we could produce a map of the dead on a particular day in Chicago, mm. probably some like late July or early August or something like that. But uh, again, our um, our friend Rick Rick Lee has come up with <laughs> the perfect logo, which is the dead. They're not going to count themselves. <laughs> so I think that's yeah. going to be the idea. No, that's good. And so I don't know. I mean, it's it's maybe a little. I don't know. Is that morbid? Is it a morbid idea? Um. Well, I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, it's uh, by definition, it's morbid, right? Because it's obsessed with death. But yeah, yeah, but yeah. uh, but is it is it morbid in in the deeper philosophical or you know 
psychologically twisted sense. I, I, yeah. I don't know. No, I don't think so. I mean, um, well, you're, you're a meat eater, right? I am. Yeah, but one of the one of the kind of things vegetarians... I do it on principle. You, you eat yeah, meat on principle? Yes, I do. But what, what a lot of vegetarians like myself usually focus on is that people don't pay attention to mm -hmm. the things that they eat, and there seems to be something... Uh, it's not morbid, but there still seems to be something kind of fucked up about that. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, I have a lot more respect for uh, small farmers, not industrial farmers, but yeah. small farmers or hunters. It's still not something I could do, but at least they attend to the living things yeah. in a very intentional way. And um, uh, something about that seems better. Yeah. I, I would need to... I would need to unpack that a lot more for it not to just be pure sentimental bullshit. Mm -hmm. But okay. paying attention to the, the dead in Chicago, yeah. especially dead animals, at least uh, makes you, as a Chicagoan, as an urban dweller, mm -hmm. pay attention to the fact that there is death here. Um, and uh, death that you know isn't necessarily human. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. something that an ambulance is going to come along and cart off to the morgue yeah. and, and keep it nice and tidy. That stuff just sits there and, and rots usually, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, uh, I, I do know like I'm trained primarily as a soil, yeah, guy, and I, um, I mean, most of my, most of my scientific writing is um, on death and decay, like on decomposition, mm -hmm. but particularly of plants, mm. and um, for some reason, like um, the death and decay of leaf litter or even branches of trees doesn't alarm us yeah right but uh, there's something about the um noisomeness of animal decay that um that triggers kind of more of revolt we, we could we could live in the decay of plants and yeah. you know whoop and holler about how delightful it is to be kind of in a bed of dead leaves so I mean, people can roll around in dead leaves forever and, you know, consider that just to be the joys of autumn, but they would not kind of roll around in a, you know, a bed of rat carcasses with the same alacrity. You know, so there is, and I, I don't know, I mean, doesn't that sound a little bit like um, uh, uh, that essay, Fecundity, by... Annie Dillard. Annie Dillard, yeah. where she kind of points to the differences, right, between yeah. the way in which we think about plant fecundity versus yeah. animal fecundity. Yeah. And for listeners who don't know what fecundity means, it's uh, you know, kind of, you know, the business end of reproduction. Yeah, like fucking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I would. Uh, so I. So as as somebody that has studied, you know, death and decay, no way around it. Um, and I don't know. Obviously, death and decay has put food on the family table. That's what I got tenure based on. But, you know, so I, I am also kind of aware that I never really paid attention to the deaths of animals. And I had wondered mm. whether I had just kind of recoiled from that. So this is this is to some extent like, you know, I, I don't want to make this. I don't think this is like a, a science project. To me, there's mm. a kind of uh, strong kind of strangely aesthetic component mm -hmm. to it but i wanted people you know i wanted to pay attention and i i kind of wanted to see what that map looks like right so ultimately when we have all of these points just to um 
see what that looks like with all those photographs of little dead things throughout Chicago. Yeah. Because again, you know, I don't know, as, as you know, folks have this bad tendency to think about, you know, the death of others, the death of plants, the death of animals as somehow kind of bravely, you know, providing nourishment for the living. Mm-hmm. But that's not really the case, you know. So the decay only occurs not out of the goodness of microbial hearts because microbes are in the business of, you know, providing for their own needs. And accidentally, through this kind of the slobbering wastefulness of the kind of kingdom of decay, that mm. the um, nutrients get liberated, which get picked up by plants and then eaten by us. So I am interested. I, I you know, in, this project I think for me does connect with kind of broader themes of connection. Hmm. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's that's really interesting and fascinating. But this is the sort of thing uh, that people mean when they say that ecology is a pretty depressing science. It's a dismal science. Yeah. Um, do you think of ecology as depressing and dismal? Well, yeah, I I mean, I know recently when I was preparing a talk, so I was the ecologist invited to give a talk about Hawaii of all places not so long ago. And I realized that I was there just to depress people, you know, so, you know, paradise lost and found. I can't remember like the subtitle of the conference. So, you know, most of the talks were celebrating paradise and then they wanted the ecologist and I was wheeled in kind of at the very end just to fucking ruin the mood and just say this paradise is over. So, yeah, yeah, I think. Um, but, you know, at the same time, ecology is not, you know, environmentalism, mm. you know, so it doesn't come with a mood okay, per se. It just, you know, we're living in these, um, we're living in some pretty rough times, of course, from a, you know, environmental health point of view. Okay. So ecology, right, ecology as a discipline is indifferent to your suffering or my suffering or the suffering of anything. It's just mm-hmm. the facts, you know, whereas we may have an opinion about the direction of, you know, that some of these facts are pointing at in terms of the welfare of creatures other than us and maybe our own futures and that that i i think is genuinely deflating yeah um so real quick to this difference between ecology and environmentalism uh i think i've heard you tell a story before of a yeah a friend in a car yeah uh do you mind telling that story real fast yeah I, yeah i think yeah, uh, yeah. a lot of people assume that ecologist and tree hugging hippies yeah. are the same thing. Yeah. So I ha- I mean, I happen to be yeah. an ecologist and a tree hugging hippie. Yeah. Recently shorn. Yes. Must yeah. be said. You, you, but, you had uh, a Gandalf like I hair. had. And I used to have I don't know if um you've seen that picture recently. I used to be able to nestle a pencil in my beard. Yeah. That was um, a Facebook uh, picture for a while. Yeah, 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 exactly. But um so my like our students at DePaul are kind of used to having professors where the um, you know the distance between the ecologist and the environmentally concerned mm-hmm. person was wafer thin you know but um, that's not I mean in the discipline at large that's not necessarily the case so a number of years ago 
I brought some of my students down to a conference, the Ecological Society of America's conference. I can't remember where we were meeting that year. And I have a colleague, close uh, colleague, who um, is a great population ecologist. And um, so me and my me and him and our students took a ride out of town. I don't know to see biosphere two or something like that, <laughs> and he, um, which is an experiment about the end of the world, right? Yeah, you know, or maybe getting getting off yeah. this you, world. You meant the actual biosphere, not the movie starring Polly Shore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. There's more to be said about that, but um, <laughs> anyway. So like, I, I'm in this, uh, I'm in this, um, I'm in this car uh, in the fucking flaming heat of I don't know New Mexico or wherever we were, Arizona. Uh, and my students didn't want to roll up the windows because, the, you know, burning the air conditioner would be kind of bad for the environment. Yeah. So my colleague, as soon as he heard this, said, fuck the environment. And those kids were, like, genuinely appalled. And for, that, for them, that was the first time that they recognized that, you know, ecology is, you know, just a scientific discipline, indifferent for the most part, or it doesn't necessarily have to be um, concerned. concerned. Um, mm. Often it is, which I think is a good thing, but yeah. it doesn't have to be. Well, okay, so uh, recently this week we just saw the report about um, the Antarctic ice shelf yeah. uh, collapsing and all the all the headlines say there's nothing that can be done about it now. It's, it's happening and it's it's essentially done. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've grown up um, as a child. I grew up with uh, the kind of burgeoning environmental consciousness that went mainstream with Al Gore when he was vice president. Mm-hmm. Um, and these sort of apocalyptic scenarios have been uh, talked about. Movies have been made about them. Very little has been done mm-hmm. by governments. Uh, but I think probably the question most people have for ecologists is, you know, are we actually totally fucked? Uh, is it, is it going to be as bad as, you know, the day after tomorrow or, yeah. um, an inconvenient truth? Yeah. 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 I mean, who, who knows? Who knows? Because like, you know, I, I mean, one thing we're all bad at is predicting the future. Um, and, you know, there's a large part of climate science that is kind of about forecasting. Yeah. Right? So, you know, and our kind of models for the future tend to be, um, you know, caged in terms of, you know, probabilities, in terms of kind of a bracket of potential outcomes. So for sure, there's a slim chance that we're not fucked. Okay. That's the good news. Slim chance. There's a slim. They're slim. There's a chance. There's, there's a there's a chance, <laughs> yeah. But there'll be no kind of, uh, you know, ice to get your tongue stuck to in this uh. scenario. But uh, listen, yeah, it. Um, I don't know that. Like the the, the the hot money is on, you know, that it's it's going to be pretty rough future. And the fine print, right? The fine print, and you can even see this, like in most honest presentations of the science of climate change. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you go to the. Museum a couple of years ago had a great climate science exhibit. And in the fine print, the fine print is the apocalypse is over. Yeah. That, you know, because 
the lag times involved in planets are pretty slow. Mm. So even, and I don't know, I mean, maybe we should advertise this, but maybe we shouldn't. There's, pr there's, nothing, there's nothing we can do right now that's not about kind of um, happier outcomes for um, people who are around long after we're gone. So mm. all of our good actions, in my estimation, at least, all of our good actions are for, you know, those generations yet to come. Because what's been put in place as a consequence of the lag time in planets means that the future's already been locked in. Mm. So, you know, if cattle stop belching tomorrow, if we stop burning fossil fuels tomorrow, um, you know, if everything lined up, if we made a transition to a carbonless economy, all of these things, we'd still be experiencing climate change, and it would take, you know, over a generation before things calm down again. The other thing, poorly advertised, of course, is that our expectation is that um, ecological change is linear. Mm -hmm. I don't know because we're used to seeing that in other, you know, in other thing, you know, in other things like you, I don't know, you have one pint it's delicious <laughs> you've two pints it's even more delicious let's just keep doubling it and it gets more and more delicious but actually it's a pretty good example because you know eventually you get to the doubling where you have this irretrievably bad hangover yeah. and i think that's 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 true pretty much of most systems that you know they're linear only over a certain extent and then they are tragically non-linear so if our expectation is that you know that there's going to be a linear response mm -hmm. from the climate in response to additions of CO2 or other greenhouse gases that we have an influence over, then I think we're tragically mistaken. Um, yeah, the anticipation is that there are going to be these serious nonlinearities. So some, of course, are calling these like tipping points, that there will be yeah. kind of you reach a certain critical threshold and then the feedbacks are such that the system shifts into a whole new uh, phase. So the point about nonlinearities is that they become extremely difficult to predict. Mm -hmm. So the only thing predictable is that there's a predictability about nonlinearities, but really what that's going to look like is, um, unpredictable. is unpredictable. But um, yeah, I mean, the good news maybe you know, depending upon your perspective is, you know, it's um, wealth will purchase a certain amount of buffering. Okay. So, you know, I guess we're still a wealthy country here in the U.S., wealthy-ish. Yeah. You know, Hopefully. relatively speaking wealthy. Whatever and, that means. And that means that you can, like, you know, build walls and you can, mm. you know, sump, pump, seawater out of shit, but, um, you know, and so the it means that the it'll be on the front line are going to be the poorest people on earth yeah. and we're real good at ignoring the suffering of the poorest people on earth yeah so we were well practiced at that so for a long time and well not for a long time but for decades at least you know if we're seeing that the implications are going to be for people who we strategically don't care about care about but like don't act as if we really care about them mm -hmm. uh, then 
I'm also really good at narcotizing myself. Like any time mm-hmm. like something kind of comes along that um, seems to point at kind of the tragic consequences of climate change, even though scientists are not going to be able to say with kind of definitiveness that, you know, Katrina is climate yeah. You can't. I mean, you can't do that. But things that kind of, you know, really are consistent with the, you know, the evidence of climate change, we've become so good. It strikes me that this is something that we've really achieved over the last few decades: is lulling ourselves back to sleep in mm-hmm. the face of things that should horrify us. And that's not a particularly. It's short-term adaptive because you don't have to change your behavior strikingly, but long term we're fucked if if unless we can find our way out of kind of just uh, self narcotizing so what's your what's your opinion as an ecologist about people who push for geoengineering as a response to climate change yeah i don't know man like i um yeah i i just if if we had a good history of large scale interventions that um, panned out perfectly and equitably, mm-hmm. then sure. So like when you look at it in isolation, you might say that sounds like a great idea. You know, we'll um, expend a huge amount of capital, do something kind of on an enormous scale. You know, find kind of really groovy ways of sequestering lots of carbon. Um, but if, 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 you know, if we lived in a world where, um, you know, those sorts of large interventions historically worked out, then you would say, sure, but I don't think we live in that world. Mm. And I don't know, man, maybe it's just like I um, you know, getting back to things about the body and I kind of, I would like to see kind of a revolution on just a more modest scale where, um, you know, the actions and the kind of attentiveness of people to themselves and their behavior, you know, if that's done synchronously enough, you know, there's a reasonable expectation despite the way in which we kind of fatalistically think about, you know, the actions of individuals don't really add up. But in fact, Mm. you know, you know, one or two raindrops don't make a difference to a uh, woodland, but 10 years worth of raindrops makes a whole heap of difference. So there are circumstances, and, you know, we can we can kind of um, make some strong, stronger predictions there about, you know, when enough people are doing certain things that are attentive to their, you know, themselves mm-hmm. and are, I guess, like caring for others. Um, that that can kind of add up to revolutionary change. And in the process, we end up kind of maybe um, creating, you know, uh, more pleasing, ordinary, everyday life for ourselves. So geoengineering, you know, let's say even if it works, it does nothing kind of to transform us as individuals, right? And um, I guess I'm persuaded at this point that we do need to kind of rethink at a fundamental, personal, everyday, ordinary level, just rethink what it is that we're doing because people are not that happy. Do you think? Um, do you think the science of ecology 
counteracts or contradicts the the sort of sentimentality and environmentalism because uh, I mean what I'm hearing you say I think is uh, absolutely right you have to you have to change people you have to change um, the structures that people live in mm-hmm. um, but some people might hear that and think that it sounds like pure sentimental yeah. normal kind of green environmentalism yeah. um, how do you see that differing from that kind of sentimentality and and if do you see it differing because of your your grounding in the the science yeah well i yes i mean the question of you know sentimentality is i mean it's a it's a long standing question and conversation topic between you and me and others that we interact yeah. with so i mean assuming that sentimentality is where you refuse to smell the shit yeah you know and that you're kind of not you're not giving an honest reckoning about uh things um then i i, do, I mean I, I don't think that um the question of what we do personally in ordinary everyday life which is a kind of an important marxist mm-hmm. question too mm-hmm. you know I, I i don't i don't think that that's um i don't think that's sentimental I mean, ecology maybe as a discipline is kind of indifferent, really. To you know, you know, these it doesn't pr- doesn't furnish us with anything to, to help us think about what the right thing to do is. Mm. So for me, it's not you know, I w- I'm I'm more interested really uh, in the way in which kind of philosophy provides ways of thinking about the ordinary every day, and in particular, like I'm really you know, in informing some of these suggestions about kind of a radical transformation in the way in which we take up our daily lives, which sounds a little Catholic as well now that I think about it. But it, it also um, or Maoist. I'm Maoist, yeah. But I, I think I'm I'm getting some of this from um uh Albert Borgman, the University of Montana um Catholic philosopher now that I think about it. Um but so for Borgman, he's interested in Kind of what he calls focal practices, uh, where focal practice basically you can translate it as things where the way in which you do it, the means by which something is accomplished, is as important as the end. So for him, the counteraction to what he calls the device paradigm, you know, thinking about you know the immediacy of technological ends without thinking about any of these implications, for him, the counteraction to that is um you know the sort of things that we do in our daily lives you know where um the daily practices bring us into an encounter with the things of the world you know so um preparing a family meal sure the meal that you maybe get he was talking about like he was writing these sort of things of course when people had tv dinners i don't know if people do that anymore you know, where you get like a microwave before yeah. TV dinner. So he's saying, right, you know, maybe the nutrients that you get from the TV dinner are fine, but clearly there's something tragic about the TV dinner. Yeah. So I, you know, in the sense that, you know, preparing food and bringing the family around this focal practice is an appetizing thing, mm. both nutritionally and otherwise. So I, I think there's something like that going on with the difference between like, Geoengineering approaches to a problem versus just taking up things yeah. into our daily lives. Yeah. 
Better transform yourself. Maybe, uh, have you seen this uh, new product called Soylent? It's a, it's, yeah. a, it's a food. It's a powder food that you just drink, and it gets you get all your nutrients from it, and it's being marketed for people who are busy, and, uh-huh. and they can use the time when they drink their Soylent. Yeah, uh, uh, and it's not green. No, Yeah. but they named it Soylent. Wow, that's a... Um, Horrifying. That's a... Uh, presumably not a misstep, right? I mean, that's, no, no. Uh, their yeah. tagline is "It's not people." Yeah, I would say <laughs> that's not a focal practice. Like no. drinking that is probably not a focal practice. I mean, I I've come across some people calling this, uh, saying that there's a utopian impulse behind that sort of thing, uh, between behind TV dinners, behind trying to master yeah. nature in that way, trying to get away from. Um, the constraints on the human body yeah um and they're doing that from from pretty hardcore materialist reductionist perspectives yeah. uh do you see those kinds of philosophies as as damaging yeah you know let's see if we can think of any of those experiments that have really worked out well so I, i'm i'm not um immune from thinking that you know can we come up with Something I, I guess we kind of like our, you know, clearly we like all of this stuff because this is the world that we've built ourselves, and we kind of, you know, even us environmental folks, you know, um, have blackberries and iPhones. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, and use GPS and your exactly, your yeah, work. yeah, yeah. So I don't know, man. Like, so we're kind of so hooked on soilence of you know, the mind and the body that, um, yeah, we're fucked. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, the thing is, like, you know, we uh, we are addicted mm. to the things that we kind of sustain being addicted to. Mm. Maybe we should just, like, give in. To addiction? Yeah, just, like, let's, you know, Ride fuck this it all. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a... So why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you kind of just... Um, because it's clearly what we want. It's what we're longing for. Ease. Convenience. Mm. Death. Well, I mean, that's Sleep. that's an interesting way to take yeah. the, the hardcore um, uh, position of some environmentalists mm-hmm. who think that we have to have a, yeah. a controlled mm-hmm. killing off of a human species for the sake of the yeah. biosphere. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. So yeah. this is... So, you know, I I always realize this, like, you know, because at some point in all of these conversations, like, I kind of, I'm struck by the fact that even those of us piously mm-hmm. working on behalf of environmental stuff seem not to be able to kind of honor our intellectual commitments. Mm. Then I realize, you know, and then at that point in that conversation, it always occurs to me that we still have, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but we still have a capacity for love. That's kind of an old-fashioned word. We, <laughs> some some of your listeners may have to Google Google that one. But the um, <laughs> but it it uh, so think about this. Like I don't know, man. I'm predicting that both you and I wake up in the morning worrying about you know how we've disappointed our beloveds and our friends and you know everyone around us and are charged with the idea that we can fucking do better, mm. you know, 
and whatever else is going on with humans, we wake up with that most unfashionable thing going on in our mind because when you buy love, mm. you probably still can't really do that. Mm. And so here is something that is not the second thing that we think of when we wake up. It tends to be like one of the first things that you think of, think of that you can be a better friend or you can be a better partner. And I find that, you know, I find the fact that like we are committed to something predicated on the certainty of defeat, that in fact we won't be significantly better friends or significantly better, you know, husbands. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't want to speak to, speak to you, of course, but I think the fact that like we know that that's the most difficult thing to do and yet we step up every day knowing that we're not going to geoengineer that one. That's pretty consoling to me. You're speechless. I'm a you little shocked. speechless. <laughs> that's, uh, that's good. Yeah, but don't you think... I, I? So I've been playing around with this, and I've been trying to see, okay, what do you do with that thought? Yeah. Because, um, I don't know, we wake up with the impossible in our mind. Okay, so what if... Um... What if one of these these uh, materialist reductionist, very masculinist geoengineers came to you and was like, "Well, uh, we know that the experience of love is brain chemicals and some, you know, your C fiber yeah. firing in this this certain way, and we can we can manipulate that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so why don't we just manipulate that in everyone so they feel pretty good? Yeah. What would your response to that be?" Well, okay, so I'm I'm gonna um, acknowledge that question and answer another one. Okay. Um, because you know another way of maybe thinking about it is you know um, just back to these questions of our evolution and makeup. I mean, you can come up with a materialist explanation for love that may eventually end up in a tablet, mm -hmm. the love tablet. <laughs> maybe it'll be heart shaped. Right. Um, but you know you can you can you know you can say okay well love functions you know in this particular way to enhance you know fitness of you know the individual in love blah 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 but you know that explanation doesn't end up adding up to a hill of beans nobody mm. wants that explanation in the place of the experience of love and you know in my kind of in what i'm suggesting to you that love is impossible. Friendship is impossible. Mm. You know, that, um, you know, if you cured that impossibility, in fact, you'd be achieving nothing. Because to me, it's the, um, you know, it's, it's that's, it's the beautiful part of it is that, you know, the, it's the failure that's important. And so that, but but at the same time, it's not a failure that we resign ourselves to; it's a failure that kind of galvanizes us. Mm. And so, to some extent, that may be, you know. So when Leopold, Elder Leopold, talks about kind of you know this extension of community to include kind of the the land, mm -hmm. you know, he's inviting us to think about in loving terms maybe about something that we've also failed in our responsibilities yeah. towards. And so we should wake up. Sure, when we wake up in the morning, you know, our first thought should be kind of of our kind of um, 
radical need to get beyond our failures in our relationships. And our second thought, maybe after you know, a fortifying bagel or whatever, to be like, what can I do to kind of love the world a little bit better? Yeah. And I was, I don't know about you, like when I use the word love, I do feel sentimental. You know what I mean? Like it, it's yeah. kind of an uncozy, you know, on the one hand, it's the coziest world, word in the world, but it still seems like a kind of a private word. Yeah, it's very private. It's very, it's very doomed. Yeah. It's uh, fraught with, yeah. uh, with danger. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think, um, I think it's the word that philosophers won't really, won't really say. Yeah. They can be radical in, in all other ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, or even scientists, you know, we can talk about. For sure. Uh, um, a species. Uh, fitness and, yeah. and all that but as soon as you start talking about this um people start to recede people start to grow quiet people yeah, start to get yeah. nervous even um, even scientists become kind of quasi philosophical when yeah. they um you know talk about this instinct so eo wilson doesn't talk about bio love yeah. which would sound you know very hippie yeah Biophilia. I mean, he talks biophilia. Yeah. So we're almost, you know, there's there's a deep uncomfortability yeah. about um, this thing, and and yet it's it's this little grain that we kind of nourish in mm -hmm. our in our hearts, I guess. I yeah. don't know. Maybe maybe I'm, maybe this is just me, but um, I think uh, I think a lot of us kind of are looking for that. There's no websites for people looking for love. Yeah, okay, Cupid. Yeah, isn't isn't that, you know, isn't that what most, you know, okay, most of the internet's for. <laughs> yeah, so okay, if you if you slice off that that uh, ice sheet part. size Antarctic ice sheet size slab of um <laughs> the internet that goes to pornography. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't a hefty slice of the rest of it going for romantic love? Yeah. And there's probably a little romance in the pornography part too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, you I'll, know, uh, I'll have to look. Uh, a soup song. I'll have to look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, that's pretty fantastic. Uh, are there any other projects you're working on right now? Oh man, can I tell you this one thing? Yeah. So we're working. So, Death and Decay. Death and Decay. So I've been working on, um, which I've never done before. I've gotten really interested in the decomposition of human shit. Oh yeah, have we talked about this. Uh, I've seen you. I've seen you talking about it on Twitter. You tried yeah, this to get is, some, and yeah, you're running into ethics boards problems. Yeah, well, uh, biosafety boards. So oh, okay. listen. Um, so the idea I'm working with a. Um, so I'm working with Domenico D'Alessandro, who's a designer. Not working on suits, but he's designed a um, an add-on for buildings, which is basically a soil-based column that um, removes the shit from the building. And decomposes the excrement, and your are you allowed to say excrement on your your yes. uh, yeah yeah, um, fuck yes, <laughs> and so like he uh, it removes the uh, excrement into the soil where it breaks down, and of course um, huh. you know I mean we kind of know that like when a bear shits in the forest, you know it's not flushed into the no. hydrological system, it's decomposed in the soil. So yeah. most of the shit of the world decomposes in the soil. So uh, we had the bright idea, of course, that we would mix our terrestrial excretions with the hydrological system, which is having, you know, profound negative implications yeah. for, you know, the hydrosphere. So his his idea then is like to have this um, shaft on buildings that would, um, you know, 
allow the X-Men to decompose in place. Hmm. And then you could w kind of flush that system, irrigate the system, and use the, uh, you know, the leachate to irrigate a uh, living wall inside the building. So we have partners um, here in Chicago that are willing to help with the prototype. But I had told them that I would help work on, you know, what the matrix in the uh, bioshaft, as it's called, the design, what the matrix of the kind of soils should be to accelerate decomposition. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to do this like in a kind of small way, but in the laboratory. And um, it turns out when I proposed this that um, our biosafety board lit up. I was just looking for a little baby shit. This is like we were <laughs> we had like a faculty member who would let her kid, you know, shit in a bag and then we bring it in and yeah. we decompose it. Yeah. Little baby poop. But um it turns out you can't do that. Um why? Because it's a biosafety hazard. There can be all sorts of contaminants. Can't you just in wear there. a mask? Yeah. Or? Well my well my initial suggestion is that we would set up the experiment in the toilet. Okay. You know, because apparently, you know, it would be difficult if you if you propose this wild experiment of shitting, <laughs> you know, at a university. Yeah. If anyone heard that of what was going on in these bathrooms, the whole fucking thing would be closed down because that's hazardous. But okay. anyway, so the um, luckily, um, even the though whole, people shit in there all day, every day, that's what I'm given to believe. Okay, all I right. do. All right, I mean, I. I you've have, you've I done have my that. favorite you've toilets on campus. Yeah. 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 Which we one? Don't yeah. You uh, like, I prefer the one over here in McGowan, and then there's yeah. one in the library yeah. on the third floor that on the third I like. Floor. Yeah. 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 They're Prestige quiet. cubicles. They're yeah. They're you know a little bit private. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's 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 right. You gotta like mark mark your territory. Yeah. Human beings are animals. <laughs> yeah. Too. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, um, you know the. DePaul really helped me out. Um, so in order to be in compliance, I, I had to do this experiment in a um, biosafety uh, hood. Mm. So I now have, I'm about to get delivered two hoods mm -hmm. at DePaul. We've got a little biosafety lab, which is now the official DePaul shit lab. <laughs> and um, we are, yeah, man, like I'm behind locked doors. We will be looking wow. at the breakdown of, of shit. So I'm excited about this. Yeah. Because honestly, you know, if that experiment works out, this could be, and this collaboration with Domenico works out, this could be the most profoundly, practically important hmm. piece of work I've ever done. Because, um, and I'm thinking, like, my collaborator, student collaborator with this is um, Shail Patel. I don't know if you know Shail. No. Great. Uh, uh, great, great uh, kid, but he, um, you know, his his family are kind of of uh, Indian uh, origin, and of course in India there's real problems with access to uh, laboratories. Mm -hmm. um, so to have like a simple soil base, I mean there are you know decomposing toilets, you know, but this would be a significant kind of achievement, I think, and just finding the right kind of soil mixture mm -hmm. that would facilitate the very rapid breakdown of um, excrement. Yeah. yeah. So I'm excited. That's cool. Yeah. And uh, is, is that the, is that everything that's on the docket right now? Yeah. You know, I mean, we have a lot going on. Um, so 
I'm still overseeing this 100 sites for 100 years right. project, just looking at restoration success in the Chicago area. We're still we're, um, actively working, beginning to publish on um, questions about human decision-making and how that influences yeah. the outcome of biodiversity. Right. So restoration, shit, walking, the dead. Yeah, that's you know, my stuff. We're doing plenty of... We're getting really interested in um, looking at the distribution of what I call unseen beings, like the, the um, diversity of critters in uh, soils, systems in urban environments. Yeah. We've been working a little bit on that. That's about it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Liam. I think we covered everything from Catholicism to love, death to shit and some of our favorite places on DePaul's campus. Make sure you check out his writings on the web, and as always, the Tumblr page is there for discussion. I want to end with one more quote from The Passion According to G.H. Love is much more than love. Love is something before love. It's plankton struggling and the great living neutrality struggling just like the life in the roach stuck at the waist. Yes, the roach was a creature without beauty for other species. Only another roach would want this roach. I hope as you go throughout the week, even if you feel like no one or no thing finds you beautiful, that you remember your name is your name.